to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. I am an integrated cardiothoracic surgery resident at University of Pittsburgh. I have Dr. Jonathan DeCuna, Division Chief of Lung Transplant and Lung Failure at UPMC. Today we're going to talk about pleurifusion and empyema. Thanks, DZ. It's a pleasure to be here to discuss this. So we have our case here. Uh, Ms. D is a 59-year-old female who presents to the emergency room with right-sided chest pain. She walked into a gate and hit her right chest four weeks ago. After the accident, she experienced worsening pain under her right breast, shortness of breath, and a cough productive of tan yellow sputum. She had decreased appetite and unintentionally lost 15 pounds. She denies fever, chills, night sweats, wheezing, recent travel, or sick contacts. Her pertinent medical history includes type 2 diabetes, IV drug abuse, hypertension, and gastroesophageal reflux disease. Her surgical history includes tracheostomy as a result of severe angioedema from lisinopril. She has a 20-pack year smoking history and currently smokes one pack per day. She denies recent IV drug use uh, in, in the past three years. Chest x-ray shows right-sided pleural effusion. What is your differential diagnosis for this case, Dr. Dikuna, and how would you approach working up her chief complaint? Well, all too often, this is actually a very common presentation for a patient um, coming to the emergency department, especially when we're dealing with general thoracic call issues. And what you have is a 59-year-old female who's coming in with a remote history of trauma, some weight loss, and now she's got um, shortness of breath as her main complaint with a right-sided pleural effusion. At this point, the differential is quite broad and large, and um, it's the things that come to mind, uh, you know, they can be numerous. It can be everything from uh, a, a trauma-related event that got overlooked uh, weeks ago that has set itself up like a hemothorax uh, that's organized everything to a, a pneumonia which has in, ensued because of uh, the follow-up to related to that and even with her smoking history and some other risk factors she's had certainly she's at risk for a malignancy. Um, there are other things that go into the differential but that's sort of the broad uh, things that are running through my mind at this point. Um, I'd start working it up by uh, what we should all be doing with these patients is going and examining them. And uh, so I'd go examine the patient with a special t attention to, you know, heart and lung exam uh, and then other signs uh, that might help narrow our differential at this point. But more often than not, we're going to have to get some labs and additional imaging uh, to further uh, refine the diagnosis. All right, so um, on physical exam, she is afibrile normal tensive. Her heart rate is elevated at 121. She uh, is requiring six liters of supplemental oxygen to maintain a saturation of 90%. On physical on auscultation, uh, she has decreased uh, breath sounds near the right lung base. Uh, she was also very tachypneic, having difficulty to complete full sentences. Her lab work shows a white blood cell count of 26,000, normal electrolytes, normal troponin level, and lactate of 0 0.7. Uh, we performed a CT angiogram of the chest, which is negative for pulmonary embolism, but shows a moderate loculated right pleural effusion, causing compression atelectasis of the right lower lobe with superimposed pneumonia. 
So in summary, we have a patient that presents with subacute chest pain and productive cough. Workup is significant for elevated white blood cell count and inoculated right pluriffusion. As thoracic surgeons, we're frequently consulted on management of pluriffusions. What is your typical approach? Well, I think this patient is a good example of, and that's you know one of the reasons why we selected it for this scenario. But you know her lab work suggests infection. Uh, there could be some other things that go along, and uh, we've already obtained high resolution imaging with a CT angio of the chest, which is perfectly appropriate for someone presenting uh, in this uh, you know present outpatient to the ED uh, who's tachypnic and short of breath. Um, when you're faced with this situation, uh, you know, you want to make sure you're doing a full evaluation as the differential, again, at this point remains quite broad. And the first thing that comes to mind is really sampling the fluid. And so uh, typically either a pigtail catheter or a chest tube uh, can be placed at this point, especially if she's tachypnic. You want to see if you can get that right lower lobe expanded as much as possible. And there's a chance that when you put in a tube, you know, you're going to be looking at some sort of an infectious effusion, et cetera. So fluid sampling along with fluid analysis would be the next appropriate step at this point. So our patient uh, received a CT-guided right thoracentesis uh, pigtail catheter. It was placed by the interventional radiology department. Um, some yellow turbid fluid was able to be drawn from the chest tube. And fluid analysis shows pH of 7.5, total protein 5, LDH of 3,500. Cytology is negative for malignancy. Fluid culture is positive for MSSA. The patient was started on IV antibiotics. Pigtail continues to drain approximately 100 cc per day of yellow turbid fluid. Her white blood cell count starts to improve. Chest x-ray, however, shows a marginally decreased right pleural effusion. Um, at this point, her clinical picture is consistent with empyema with a positive fluid culture. Uh, what is your preferred um, way uh, to address this issue? So I think that, again, a very typical approach. I think um, you have an exudative effusion, which is can be consistent with either malignancy or infection. Um, you've already highlighted the studies we've obtained in an organized fashion. And, you know, the cytology being negative for malignancy doesn't absolutely rule out a malignancy. However, you know, and that usually takes a little bit, 24 to 48 hours to return. Um, in this situation, um, you know, with turbid fluid uh, and the history of trauma, along with, uh, you know, perhaps uh, questioning her, you might find her to have a little bit of a difficult course following the fall. Uh, an infection, superimposed infection is not atypical. So she gets put on antibiotics, she improves a little bit, but at this point, you really have two options for the management, assuming that you're uh, not going down the malignancy pathway at this point. Uh, the first option would be uh, lytic therapy with uh, uh, injection of TPA DNAs through the tube. And if you're going to follow this, um, you really want to uh, do it the way that I think it was done the best, and that's in the randomized trial that was uh, presented in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011, which was the MIS-2 trial, in which um, you know it was it was blinded, and uh, there were uh, three groups which included, uh, well actually there was a double placebo group, a TPA DNAs group, a TPA plus placebo group, and a DNAs plus placebo group. And the group that did the best was TPA DNAs. And they gave it for uh, repetitive injections, allowed it to dwell and did this over three days. Uh, and, and they had a, a good response in that study. The other uh, way you can approach this is to just go in and operate. And I think the it kind of depends on what your clinical suspicion is and what you're trying to achieve. 
and a lot of that goes to what's your imaging uh, tell you. So if you get good drainage and the lung re-expands either by chest x-ray or high resolution CT imaging, you know, you may want to think about doing TPA DNAs to try to avoid an operation. Having said that, if you, uh, sometimes the most direct way to intervene on these things is to go straight to operation and um, the TPA DNAs just uh, really is, um, delays that process. Uh, especially if you look at the CT and there's a rind around the right lower lobe that's thick or chronic in any way, TPA DNAs is not going to uh, work that way. Or work, work on that uh, effectively to get the lung re-expanded and you'll be left with a space. So again, there's a number of factors that go into making this decision. I think each patient is, into, is uh, you know, you make the decision depending on the clinical situation. The one thing I always tell residents and trainees on the service, if you put a tube in and you get pus, you're probably not going to get out of it, not operate. You probably need to be in the OR at some point. Um, oftentimes you will get called by the medicine team if they put in a tube and they're draining pus they want you to operate right away I actually think it's better to give antibiotics get things drained in a staged way in a day or two once their um, you know their infection is somewhat under control then go to the operating room um, one final note on this is as you think about working this up you don't want to forget about other things that cause infections in the chest such as a perforated esophagus which leaks into the chest or uh, things of or a tumor which is necrotic and perforates or I've even seen it where you've had uh, you know problems in the abdomen leading to uh, fistulas into the chest so these are all things you need to keep in mind in terms of your imaging and how the patient's doing clinically. That is a very good point about uh, looking for other sources of infection in the chest usually we just assume it's an empyema caused by uh, a community or hospital acquired pneumonia. Are there any circumstances where TPA DNA's injections are contraindicated, in your opinion? I think, um, you know, we've ha there have been patients who are, uh, you know, when you're worried about bleeding, I think that that's a situation where TPA can make that worse. So if you have a bronchopleural fistula where the TPA is working its way into the parenchyma of the lung, could potentially cause something. Or if you've got a patient who's on anticoagulation, or maybe they've had a known, known rib fractures and a, and a hemothorax that you're trying re, in recently, I think when you instill TPA DNAs, those would be, those would be uh, patients that either I would think carefully about doing it or adjust the dose appropriately uh, and, down, and go down on the dose when comparing to the dose in the New England, Medicine, New England Journal of Medicine article from 2011. Thank you very much. So our patient, indeed, she received uh, three doses of intrapleural TPA DNA's treatment. Repeat CT chest shows marginally uh, decreased loculated right pleural effusion with a persistent right lower lobe analectasis and consolidation. At this time, she remains afebrile, uh, heart rate in the 120s. She, her oxygen demand had um, decreased to 40. There's by nasal cannula. Uh, however, her white cell count began to rise again and uh, rose up to uh, 14,000. Um, it looks like clinical air patient did not improve despite drainage and the course of TVA DNA's injection. What would be your next step in management? Well, I think at this point, you've, you know, you're gonna get additional imaging uh, and you, you've done that by getting a CT chest which shows that things aren't drained and there's persistent uh, right lower lobe consolidation, collapse, atelectasis, and, this is uh, basically consistent with a failure of the bedside lytics. 
So at this point, you want to think about operating. Why do you operate? Well, you're operating to get lung re-expansion. You're also operating to get a definitive diagnosis and really get the patient on a pathway to full recovery. Uh, and she's young. She's 59. Uh, she's got. You want to make sure that you're optimizing her lung function uh, long term when you're making decisions on this. And so this is a patient that you can feel comfortable uh, during the that you've done what you can non-operatively and based on the imaging and the way things are going uh, clinically that it's time to go to the operating room and you can prepare her as such. How do you um, typically perform a, a pulmonary decortication both uh, in a VATS manner and in the open thoracotomy approach? Uh, good question. It's a common problem we deal with, of course. Uh, the first thing starts by uh, making sure the patient's correctly pre-opt. And what do I mean by that? Well, you got to know what you're up against in terms of cardiopulmonary physiology. Oftentimes, you'll have the lung imaging and the functional status done, but you also want to make sure that the patient's not frail, uh, that they're appropriate for an operation, that their uh, heart can take the operation. Um, sometimes what you want to make sure you're not in a vicious cycle of is patients with empyemas can come in chronically malnourished. And the reason why they're malnourished is because they have a chronic infectious process. So operation on a patient like that may actually make them better. So I think the, each patient's managed a little differently. The one thing I find very useful, especially on inpatients, is an echo of the heart, a transthoracic echo, because it tells me what their LV function is doing and if they have any right-sided problems such as pulmonary hypertension or RV failure, because this really will stage uh, your risk. And patients with smoking histories who are a little bit older in age, they're not coming into the hospital because they have essentially normal physiology. So once I get that, uh, we'll bring them to the operating room, obtain informed consent, make sure they have adequate antibiotics. They go to sleep in the operating room. I typically put appropriate lines in for the type of operation that I think we're gonna be required. And I always tend to, as you know, DZ, prepare for the worst uh, in any situation. Decortications can be big operations that do have significant blood loss. Um, so you want to be prepared for that. Um, I, I will routinely intubate these patients with a single lumen ET endotracheal tube and perform bronchoscopy. That provides a couple different things. One is it clears the airway of secretions, allows you to get good cultures, but then also evaluates for any endobronchial lesions. And I wonder in this patient, as we're going to the operating room, why is that right lower lobe still collapsed? And making sure that there's not an aspiration event with a foreign body, uh, you know, a tooth, uh, you know, we've seen weird things down there. Also, obviously, tumors are in the differential. Absolutely. So, uh, the what typically is the next step is a double lumen endotracheal tube. I prefer this over a blocker, uh, generally, but you can do these with blockers. And then, I I would say, uh, I can't remember the last time I started without tr attempting to go get in via VATS, and so I do then prepare the patient. Usually, in, if you're going on the right side, you place them in the left lateral decubitus position and uh, through the seventh or eighth interspace, do a direct cut down and enter the chest and get your thoracoscope in and start working. Once you're in the chest with the thoracoscope, then you usually try to get at least, I always, the goal is to get generally three ports in uh, that triangulate the area of interest. And so if you've got a posterior effusion with a lower lobe uh, entrapment, uh, really you're talking about a a low port uh, in the uh, posterior axillary line and probably another upper port in the anterior axillary line in the fourth or fifth space. And I, you go in and you start basically drain the effusion, make sure it's sent off for cytology and cultures. 
and then examine the, the pleural space. And um, I often, with the lung isolated, also use CO2 as an adjunct, low-dose CO2, making sure that the patient is hemodynamically stable when you use CO2, and that usually uh, is monitored by an arterial line in the operating room. And then I proceed to try to take down the adhesions within the chest. Very early in the process, I make sure that I send off uh, frozen section biopsies on the pleural. I don't want to get burned by a cancer. Oftentimes, if it's a mesothelioma, they won't be able to tell you on frozen section that it's actually a meso, but uh, you kind of know ahead of time what you're up against or your index of suspicion, depending on the presentation. Uh, but certainly, before I get too far along, I want to make sure I'm not decorticating a cancer of the chest or a malignant effusion that I'm dealing with. Um, once this is accomplished, you really have to make a decision on what your goals are for the operation uh, and whether you can achieve those via minimally invasive approach. Um, my goal is to get the lung completely re-expanded in the case of empyema. Uh, and this is for garden variety, infectious things as a result of a, pneumonia, a previous history of a pneumonia. As part of that process, we have to get the rind off the lower lobe of the lung uh, and so that, that can be a very involved process. And I usually persist VATS as long as I possible until I'm not making progress. And then that's the decision point at which I will have to make uh, whether we convert to open. Uh, and how you do that or where you make your incision, every patient's a little bit different. Uh, I generally make um, the incision uh, relative to where the disease process is. And always keep in mind that you don't want to get burned again by uh, an esophageal perforation that's chronic or something like that. So we have, we are thoracic surgeons, we have other things at our disposal. If there's any doubt, you can slip an esophagus scope down the esophagus and make sure things, uh, you know, the esophagus is intact and there's no defects there. So um, in this particular situation, my prediction ahead of time based on the imaging that you're telling me is we're probably gonna be, this is a chronic uh, thing with a trap lobe. I think we're probably looking at, if we're not making progress, converting to a, a thoracotomy. Uh, and generally in this circumstance, I'm probably gonna do the thoracotomy in a lower rib space over this, so I can really get onto the decorticating that lower lobe and the diaphragm, which can be very difficult to reach. How do you typically manage these patients um, postoperatively, particularly in terms of um, managing the chest tubes, uh, any sort of repeat imaging? Um, after the surgery um, or, or pain management? Good question. So these are all very important. From a, I'll talk about the management of the pleural space. Again, we're decorticating, getting the lung completely re-expanding, washing out uh, with, with uh, saline solution and making sure that the lung uh, completely re-expands and fills the space. If you don't get the space filled, you may have problems after surgery uh, in the post-operative period. I usually place uh, anywhere between one to three tubes, depending on what we have to drain. I like to place a posterior tube and something along the diaphragm. Uh, sometimes if it's a bad infection or something, an extensive decortication, I'll put a third tube in. Or if I want to leave, if I think I'm going to be leaving a tube chronically, I may use a small tube like a 24 French or a Blake drain in the, in the chest. Um, so these are all options. Uh, and Postoperatively, once you place your tubes, you want them on suction for two to three days, and you're following with serial chest X-rays and making sure you're avoiding postoperative complications. The earliest, most is hemothorax, and and uh, or, uh, because these procedures can be uh, bloody, as I mentioned earlier. But then also, you want to make sure that you're uh, 
keeping the patient having good uh, pulmonary toilet postoperatively, and you may even have to do bronchoscopy on them uh, to keep that lung up because you don't want to have uh, the lobe go down again with secretions, etc. That is a good segue into discussions of pain management. And so, um, you know, typically we use uh, PCA uh, pain, pain pumps, and uh, I prefer Dilaudid as an analgesic just because it's a little bit cleaner than some of the other uh, opioids in terms of if your patient goes into renal failure and other things like that. And we're pretty aggressive about paravertebral blocks that the patient's not making uh, progress. I say we've stayed away from epidurals in the post-operative setting, and the first day or two is always the worst, uh, trying to get them up and mobilized as soon as possible. Um, you asked about additional imaging. Um, I think that chest x-rays, are, daily chest x-rays are typically all you need. Um, sometimes if you have additional things that you see on chest x-ray that you're not happy with, collections um, contain, uh, that are contained, you may want to evaluate by getting additional uh, imaging such as a CT scan. Wonderful. So as you remember, uh, recall about Mrs. D's case, we did end up bringing him, uh, bring her to the operating room and we performed right vats converted to thoracotomy decortication. We placed three chest tubes for drainage. She was extubated on post-update one. Final culture is positive for MSSA from the operating room. She ended up being treated uh, for four weeks with a course of unison. She was eventually discharged home in stable condition. I should probably comment on one other thing in the post-operative setting. These patients are at high risk for aspiration. And as you know from being on service with me, DZ, these can be half-day operations, you know, two to four hours of work, et cetera, and they're already coming in malnourished and debilitated. So I think studying their swallowing function post-operatively is of paramount importance because you don't want, and I do this formally with a modified swallow, uh, I don't think you want them aspirating at this point. They're probably already there in some, in many cases because of that event. And so uh, you've talked about giving this patient four weeks of antibiotics. We generally consult our infectious disease service to give us guidelines on how long to treat. Um, and uh, then chest tubes come out uh, typically uh, after 48 to 72 hours of suction, depending on drainage, they get sequentially pulled. And we typically look for drainage less than 100 cc's per day on these kind of patients. Yep, I uh, absolutely agree with the point that you were making about the um, these patients being high risk for aspiration events. I mean, especially in a lady such as her uh, being so deconditioned and intentionally lost weight in the past uh, couple of weeks. Uh, I definitely think that's very important. So that was a wonderful discussion about empyema. There are um, a few other types of pluriffusions that we frequently encounter in the clinical settings, um, and we would love to learn more about them. Great. So I think the most other the other most common one is a malignant pleural fusion. We kind of talked a little bit about that, um, but you know the patients like this can easily come in uh, with the pleural fusion, and you get a cytologically positive uh, finding, such as an adenocarcinoma. And they're short of breath, and you want to figure out how to best manage that. Um, I think the gold standard is to get the fluid drained, come up with a treatment plan overall. I think that historically. Um, when we think about managing malignant pleural fusions, we think about pleuridesis because we try to get the lung to scar up to the chest wall and that, that will drive the fluid into some other spot and not into the chest, causing problems. 
I remember early in my career and my training, we used a lot of talc on these sorts of patients, and that stems from just uh, surgeon experience to larger studies that have looked at the most effective pleuridesis agents. And I know you looked up one for this uh, podcast, and that being the Cochrane database. I looked at the Cochrane report back when I first started as faculty, and it, it um, showed that talc was the best. And I think you found a more updated Cochrane database, which confirms that talc is the best uh, sclerosant. Um, I will say I find myself using more Plurex catheters uh, at this point in my career. I think that um, talc has a downside uh, of a ARDS-like react reaction, which does occur. I've seen it in some patients. And I've been surprised at the efficacy of a Plurex catheter. It's, it really can be, it can be put in at the bedside, it can be done under vats, and oftentimes you drain the fluid and then in two to three months, whether it's scarring or treatment of the cancer that's happened, uh, the Plurex catheter can be removed either in the clinic or in the operating room under local. Um, I prefer to do all of these procedures via vats uh, in the operating room uh, for fit patients because I like to put the scope in, get additional biopsies for our oncology people in case they need to do tumor markers and other molecular markers on things. Uh, and then also I can get a visualization of whether the lung's gonna re-expand. Uh, if you're in the operating room and that lower lobe is trapped by a malignant effusion, it doesn't re-expand, talc is not gonna work. You have to get pleural apposition of the parenchyma to the chest wall. And so in that case, that's why a Plurex catheter is oftentimes the best thing you can do for the patient. Yeah, you, absolutely. In my time as a resident, I've definitely seen a lot of uh, Plurex catheter being uh, placed for patients with uh, malignant fusions. Um, have not seen many uh, top pleurodesis procedures. Could you describe how you perform them? Sure, uh, good question. And um, talc uh, historically has been, uh, the concern of using talc is because it's come uh, historically with some contaminants. In addition to the ARDS, it has some contaminants in it, and people think it sets you up down the road uh, for potential problems, i.e. risk of a mesothelioma, et cetera. Um, so again, I think dose is important. That comes through in many of the studies. You never really want to use more than, uh, if you can avoid it, more than roughly five grams of talc. I do it via vats, put the scope in, and then uh, we, uh, do it through uh, a CO2 insufflation where the talc gets evenly distributed over the chest wall. I try to keep the talc off the lung parenchyma itself because just it seems to me that that might cause enhanced inflammation. And, um, and again, you wanna put in one or two chest tubes when you're done uh, to get the lung completely re-expanded and up, up against the chest wall uh, as you, uh, for the next 48 to 72 hours as the pleurodesis sets in. Uh, Postoperatively, I try in the, the situation with where we're using talc, I try to avoid uh, things like toradol and other anti-inflammatories because we want inflammation to occur to basically get the lung to stick to the chest wall. Thank you. That was very helpful. How would you approach uh, the clinical scenario where the patient has a pleurifusion? We place a chest tube to determine the characteristics of the fluid. Uh, the uh, the appearance of fluid is milky and uh, on fluid analysis, it is positive for triglyceride and chylomicrons. Another great, great question, and sometimes we see this, unfortunately it happens uh, all too often in the post-operative period on some of our patients, especially those that have undergone esophagectomy where chylothorax, that's what we're talking about, is a, 
is a, a problem. So I would say that it depends on uh, uh, generally what you've put the chest tube in for. If it's if you're getting a, a chylothorax that's just coming out of the blue, let's say they've got a lymphoma or something like that, that's you know you've got a, a duct leak from the from the tumor. That's a very different situation than from a, a traumatic leak where we've actually done some damage through an operation. So the ones the ones that uh, that are the more medical uh, leaks, the chylothorax, what we like to do is make them MPO, put them on octreotide. If the output goes down and then success success story, you don't have to worry about it. If the output stays high. Um, right now, uh, I prefer to do embolization uh, with their interventional radiology colleague to try to embolize the duct before we operate and ligate the duct. If the problem is related to surgical trauma uh, from an operation we've done, I think that uh, you have to have the mindset of not waiting on this and sitting on it. I think that you want to intervene early because the output will be large and if you just watch it day after day, all of a sudden you're two weeks out and you've got a, you've made no dent in it with the MPO and the octreotide. So in those circumstances, I advocate for early interventional radiology intervention to embolize the duct. If that doesn't work, take them back to the OR early and just ligate the duct. I think it's, it minimizes their morbidity for this extremely uh, morbid process. Is there any value in performing lymphangiogram uh, plus embolization for chylothorax or chyle leak that is caused by uh, malignant process uh, such as lymphangiomas? Yeah, I think that when you have a leak like that, et cetera, anything you can do to decrease the flow in the duct to try to get spontaneous uh, resolution of the problem, you should do. And again, it'll be output-based. So if it's, a, if it's a small volume thing that can be managed medically and shut down, that's, that's great. Typically, though, these sorts of things, again, with a cancer, you're probably going to have to do an IR. I think it's easier to do an IR-guided uh, embolization uh, to take the duct out and, uh, and then ho hopefully get control of the leak. Um, let's segue into um, the topic of hemothorax. I realize that's not exactly, um, falls under exactly under the category of fluorofusion, but it's a, a frequent enough um, condition that comes up um, we are frequently consulted by the trauma service uh, for, for managing these. Yeah, it happens especially a lot here because we're a level one trauma center. Um, patients who come in with a, uh, with a history of trauma uh, and a large uh, collection in the chest typically first get a chest tube. Um, and if there's immediate drainage that's a lot, a lot large, like I always get worried if it's greater than a liter. Uh, I actually don't even know what the trauma books say. Maybe you do now, Kizzy? Um, it's a 1,500 cc or 20 cc per kilo. Okay, personally. so I get worried when, there's a, when, when all of a sudden there's a lot of blood just dumping in the chest tube. Now, if it stops, that's fine. That may be the initial thing. You want to monitor it closely for persistent bleeding over the next few hours because you may have to go to the operating room. Um, and that's the initial step. Depending on the amount you put out, you may... Uh, and a lot of people would advocate for early CT scanning. You're probably getting a CT scan anyways uh, to uh, evaluate the extent of injuries. And if there's a retained hemothorax uh, of significance, uh, I think that you should go early to VATS and get it drained because that's been shown in the literature to promote uh, early discharge and early recovery. Uh, what volume of retained hemothorax? Uh, there's been studies uh, there's a good study out of UT Southwestern which has demonstrated that anything in the range of uh, 250 to 300 cc's of a retained hemothorax 
should be operated on. This is post chest tube placement uh, to get the patients out of the hospital uh, earlier. Um, here we do uh, rib plating uh, as sometimes as part of this if you've got really bad displaced rib fractures. Uh, and so you can do a combined procedure with VATS to plate the ribs. One of the things that I think you know from being on service with me is that I think there's some value to putting a thoracoscope in the chest to look for other injuries that have occurred. And about 20% of the time or so, we see diaphragm injuries from rib fractures and other things that we have to fix at the time of uh, VATS uh, drainage, hemothorax drainage. Absolutely, that's exactly what happened earlier this year when we did the rib plating case uh, with the trauma service and we discovered the diaphragm injury that was missed by their initial CT scan. Yeah. Diaphragm injuries are very difficult to diagnose by imaging, and if they're small initially, what happens is they'll present later, uh, six months, a year, two years down the road, is that tear expands, and then you'll get colon and other things up in the chest. So much better to take care of them earlier rather than later. How do you typically uh, repair a diaphragm injury? Uh, so di uh, diaphragm injury, is I typically repair it from the chest. I use uh, a non-absorbable suture that's heavy typically um, a Tycron suture or a, or a heavy uh, proline, like a number one proline. Uh, and if the tear is under tension at all, I like to use pledgets uh, to perform the repair. But most of the time you can perform the repair without reinforcement uh, and just as a primary using, uh, repair using um, a horizontal mattress approach of multiple interrupted horizontal mattress sutures. Um, I know other people out there, especially in the trauma literature, talk about repairing them from the abdominal side or using absorbable suture, I just I think it's a better repair when you go from the chest and typically you have to be in there anyways to treat the other injuries or a, a hemothorax, so. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Um, how about um, hepatic hydrothorax? I've been consulted by medicine services on this condition a few times. Um, they can be quite refra refractory and difficult to treat. Yeah, and we get consulted this not infrequently here because we're a transplant center. So patients with liver failure or headed towards the transplant list oftentimes will have a, a, a hepatic hydrothorax. I think, again, you want to diagnose it correctly first, and that oftentimes involves a thoracentesis and studying the fluid. And I think that generally you want to make these uh, or have these things recur before you intervene. I always think what's the first thing I think about when we get these consults is what's going on with the liver and how are they managing that. So if I, I like to get the consult on a person with liver failure who's headed towards transplant as a definitive out, or they've got some management approach in, uh, coming down the pipeline like a TIPS to decrease the portal pressures, because if those are put in place, uh, your pleural fusion will take care of itself because the, you know, the pressures will uh, be reduced in the portal system. Um, if we have to intervene, I th I've used Plurex catheters uh, for in my entire career, uh, and they're safe and effective, and they don't get infected if they're managed correctly. And so oftentimes what we do when we're consulting this is we'll put a Plurex in, we'll let them treat the liver failure by whatever mechanism. Once that's better, we can take the Plurex catheter out. Uh, that's a great way to approach it. It's very safe. I think there's newer literature to support that uh, at present. So. I've recently also read about urothorax. Have you ever encountered this condition in your practice? I have had a couple of cases of urothorax. Uh, I didn't, to be honest with you, I didn't know about it until I was faculty and I got consulted for it and then I read about it. So that one case that I had was an RFA ablation uh, of the kidney for a kidney tumor that they burned 
the diaphragm with and ended up having a urine leak into the chest. The other was a nephrostomy tube gone bad from a percutaneous approach that leaked into the chest. So, you know, any time there are percutaneous interventions with any of our uh, upper abdominal organs, especially the retroperitoneum, there can be holes that be, can be contiguous with the chest. Um, one of the things we sometimes get consulted on here because of the, the pancreatic complications that we see are pancreatic um, pleural fistulas. So those can occur too. Uh, you know, so anything is um, anything can fistulize to the chest, and you just have a, have to have a high index of suspicion of uh, of that. And your pleural fluid studies will will lead you down the right pathway if you interpret them appropriately. Well, that was an amazing discussion. I think we covered a lot of uh, different types of pleurifusions, as well as a very in depth discussion about uh, management of empyemas. Uh, thank you again for this wonderful discussion. And thank you, DZ. You did a lot of work putting this together and uh, looking up all the literature that goes along with it. I think this will be very useful for what's a very common problem in thoracic surgery. You're welcome. Thank you, everyone.